It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Tuesday, November 17th, 2009. All right, conferring with the program notes here. Yeah, I've decided that uh, this uh, heresy season just is a whopper. Thinking heresy season? Yeah, if you haven't heard me use that term before, it's the time from basically the kids go back to school until the uh, until they get out of school. That's heresy season. Those are some. Those are some very busy times for us here at Fighting for the Faith because uh, there are some people out there just saying some of the craziest things. And, well, they put it on the Internet, which means that, of course, I have a large pile of things to work my way through. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And uh, we comment on the news, and we try to have a little bit of fun along the way. Again, what's the point in going to work if the only thing you're going to do is say, oh, this job I have, it's so serious, I can never laugh. We, <clears throat> I enjoy laughing. And that being the case, um, there are some people who will just find that to be absolutely irritating, especially if they find out that I'm laughing at their sacred cows. <laughs> I'll sit there and point a finger and go, boy, that cow sure does look stupid. <laughs> They'll sit there and go, but that's my sacred cow. And I go, yeah, that's right. Let's kill it. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> Maybe it's best if I keep you guys outside of the conversations that occur in my head. Um, yeah, because everything I say can and will be used against me. All right, today's program. Let's see here. Um, all right, let's, uh, 100, uh, looking at news. We're going to do a little bit of news, a little commentary on Phyllis Tickle, and uh, working on something here. All right, here we go. So today, our first news story we're going to talk about is 100, uh, uh, 100 groups oppose U.N. defamation of religions proposal. We'll talk about that uh, thing that's been working its way through the U.N., uh, that uh, promises to make it so that uh, any religion who uh, calls Islam uh, a false religion is likely to be blown off the face of the earth. We'll talk about that. And then we've got news here. Darwin was wrong. Scientists argue. And I, I, when I did my program notes, I wrote it in all caps. Scientists argue that Darwin was wrong. So <clears throat> we'll see what's going on here. And then, oh, this is uh, interesting news. Out of Southern California, my former, uh, the place I used to live, uh, a play depicting Jesus as gay. Yeah, as, as, uh, not, not that he was happy, um, that he was homosexual. A play de depicting Jesus as a homosexual packs a, not a, not a, not a community theater, not a, an auditorium, but packs a church. We'll read that. And then we're going to be listening to, um, an interview with, uh, Phyllis Tickle. Uh, that'll be interesting. And then here's the deal. You know, remember, was it last week or the week before? I'm getting old. Creeping decrepitude has crept upon me to the point where I, I even things in the recent past, they all kind of get muddied and jumbled. And 
But recently I interviewed Todd Wilkin on his article about Bible-believing liberals. And uh, in that article, he uh, quotes Gene Edward Veith. Uh, Gene Veith is basically saying that uh, liberalism, he defines liberalism as changing your theology to fit whatever the culture is. Well, this kind of, you know, so we can all see what the liberals, as we understand them, the people who deny that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, who deny miracles, uh, the old modernist liberals, um, we can understand where, you know, what they did. They mixed, um, you know, kind of high scientific type cultural ideas or academia culture idea, cultural ideas with the Bible. And as a result of it, they lost the gospel. Well, the question is, what is the seeker driven? What culture is the seeker driven uh, model catering to? And the answer is the American corporate business uh, model. Now, a lot of people are thinking that it, it, it's just crass marketing. Well, it, no, in reality, it's um, it really is catering to uh, mixing uh, the gospel or, quote, theology with American corporate business ideas. And what we're going to do is we're going to be listening to part of an interview with a, a marketing guru by the name of Seth Godin. Now, when I was doing my MBA, my marketing professor, Indranil Mukherjee, that Mukherjee, that was his name, that was uh, my professor. He was a gentleman who worked on uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign, absolute flaming uh, liberal, and ridiculously hilarious, uh, like side-stitching funny uh, marketing professor, brilliant as they get. Um, he introduced me to uh, Seth Godin and his stuff, and of course at the time I was working in corporate America doing well at marketing. And uh, and so I find it interesting that when you read the blogs of the guys who are who are the thought leaders, if you can really call it that, <clears throat> the non-thought leaders of the uh, seeker-driven, purpose-driven movement, uh, they they if they're if they have anything in their library, it's like good to great uh, the five dysfunctions of a team, uh, leadership principles of Colin uh, Colin Powell. And marketing ideas by Seth Godin, uh, theology not so much. No, 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 no. And what do they? What do these guys constantly talk about? The stuff that you would find in Fast Company magazine or the Harvard Business Review, which basically tells me these pastors are reading the wrong books. But uh, we'll be listening to part of that interview today. So, uh, and then our sermon review. This is in light of the fact that we're talking about churches and industry or, or the uh, seeker-driven kind of. It's it's a new form of liberalism that's mixing theology with the with corporate American culture. Um, we're going to be listening to a sermon entitled "Chase the Lion, Seizing Opportunities." Chase the Lion, Seizing Opportunities from Highland Church in Plover, Wisconsin, and uh, yeah, in uh, preview in previewing this sermon, I realized that we're going to have to employ some sound effects today. Because uh, the pastors there, it's, a, it's kind of a tag team pastoral preaching thing. Uh, Dan and uh, I forget the guy's other name. We'll figure it out along the way. But uh, the, the two guys preaching this sermon, um, they be making stuff up <laughs> that just ain't in the text. It's uh, amazing to me that here we have a Bible. And today we live in a day, day and age where we have such incredible tools at our fingertips. If you're a Macintosh user, you can use Accordance. If you're a Windows person, you can use Logos. And if, if, in fact, on the Mac, we have Logos. It's not so good yet on the Mac. It's got some deficiencies. Uh, and I'm really hoping the folks over at Logos fix some of them because I do, I used to run, uh, parallels, 
uh, Windows on my Macintosh. Now I understand, you know, it just in the thinking of some people that that's some kind of a travesty. If you're running Windows on a Mac, I believe me when I tell you, painful to have to do, painful to have to do, and um, you know, it makes my computer a by computer type thing, and. Um, just don't like that. I preferred my Macintosh to just stick to the Macintosh operating system. But for many years, I would port over to uh, Windows in order to use Logos because all the the works of Luther uh, that I have, I, I have them on Logos and uh, and you know Peeper and 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 the Locate Logikai. I got all that stuff in well on Logos. And so I was very excited when I was able to port everything over onto the Macintosh version of Logos. Uh, the thing that really is uh, the problem, though, is, is that I'm a highlight fanatic. If uh, When I'm reading, I've got multiple highlighter colors going on, plus a, a thick black pen, uh, a uniball uh, that I like to use uh, to write in the margins and make notes and things like that. And uh, wouldn't you know it, when they when they brought Logos over into the Macintosh, um, all of the visual markups, the highlighting and stuff like that, it's it, it broken, don't work. It's not even available yet. And uh, and Logos for the Mac has been out now for about a year and uh, still no ability to highlight. And uh, and you're thinking, well, just pull out a marker and highlight your, um, your computer screen. And I would say, it's <laughs> <Yeah>, funny. <clears throat> It, no, no, sorry, it doesn't work that way. So I'm really hoping that they can add something just as basic as highlighting in Logos for um, for the Macintosh. But uh, And I know some of you guys are out there sitting there going, just make the switch over to Windows. No way, not on your life. I, my, <laughs> my life is so much happier than I'm a Mac guy. And I've been a Mac guy since I graduated high school. I worked two jobs, two jobs uh, coming out of high school when I was 18 years old. I I worked at Island's Restaurant and uh, through the uh, L.A. Times newspaper and uh, in order to save up enough money to get my first Macintosh computer, the uh, uh, the anyway, <clears throat> you get what I'm saying. But uh, so, all right. So with that, we're going to dive into our uh, program proper. <clears throat> um, by the way, need to remind you all, uh, if you would like to make yourself comfortable while listening to Fighting for the Faith, it is very important to me personally, I mean on a very personal level, that your listener experience is is at the highest quality possible. And so we found certain things do enhance your listener experience. Uh, number one, make yourself comfortable. Find a place where you can actually enjoy and listen. And if you want to listen while on a walk or exercising on a treadmill or a recumbent bike or things like that, again, that's perfectly fine. If you want to enjoy an adult beverage, we do not have a problem with that. We have found that it does enhance the uh, listener experience. And fuzzy bunny slippers do also help as long as the weather is not too warm. That being the case, let's dive into our program here. The headline from the uh, Christian Post reads, 100 Groups Oppose UN Defamation of Religions Proposal. All right, this, uh, who wrote this here? Hang on, so I gotta check the authorship. Michelle A. Vu. Vu. V. U. Vu. Uh, Michelle Vu from the Christian Post wrote this, and, uh, here, here's the story. More than, uh, 100 organizations, including Muslim and secularist ones, have signed a petition against the proposed UN resolutions on the defamation of religions 
which they contend will do more harm than good for religious freedom. Yeah, you think so? Uh, The, quote, common statement from civil society on the concept of the defamation of religions, sounds like some kind of bureaucratic speak there, signed by organizations in over 20 countries, opposes the organization of the Islamic Conference's proposal for the United Nations to adopt a binding treaty that would protect religions from defamation. The groups pointed out that a similar resolution adopted earlier this year only cites Islam as the religion that should be protected. Well, if we're going to protect religions uh, from defamation, how come Islam is just being selected out as if it's the only religion that there is? And by the way, would that what would that mean if you say anything against the Prophet Muhammad? We kill you. You dead. Anyway, <clears throat> sorry. We continue. Moreover, human rights groups say that the uh, the resolutions would give credit to anti-blasphemy laws in countries such as Pakistan and Sudan. Uh, reports indicate. Listen, by the way, since when did the United Nations become a legislative body? You know, I just you know the way the story is written. I mean, it sounds like. I mean, this has all of the earmarks of of something written against a piece of legislation in the in the U.S. House or the U.S. Senate or the House of Commons in uh, in uh, Great Britain. You know what I'm saying? Uh, why why is it that we're uh, we're reading a story about some resolution in the U.N. as if it's as if the U.N. has now become a legislative body for the world? Just you know, asking the question. Uh, who's the president of, I mean, who, who, who would be the emperor of the world that would, has the ability to sign or veto legislation coming out of the United Nations? A- am I stretching this analogy too far? <clears throat> All right. Anyway, just, I'm just asking questions here because, you know, as I'm reading this thing, that's the thing that's striking my mind here is this is, is this uh, resolution about the defamation of religion, defamation of religion, somehow some binding piece of legislation. Anyway, let's see. All right. Uh, Reports indicate that blasphemy laws have been widely abused to justify violence and abuse against religious minorities in predominantly Muslim countries. Yeah, I see those Muslims, you know, know, they're just looking for a way to pull out their sword and say, uh, convert or perish, submit. That's what Islam means. Uh, Blasphemy laws can also be used to silence critics of a religion and restrict freedom of of speech. uh, By the way, just want to let you know that... uh, if this uh, piece of legislation, I don't know if that's the right term or not, but let's just go with it for a minute. If this piece of legislation in the United Nations becomes law and binding in the whole world, uh, then, uh, well, that would pretty much put me out of business. I mean, <laughs> I think I'd be rounded up in sweep number one regarding uh, anti-defamation of religion because apparently I defame Islam, Buddhism, uh, Jainism, uh, you know, Confucianism. Uh, large portions of American evangelicalism, uh, you know, I think <laughs> I'm guilty of uh, basically saying uh, all of these all these different isms uh, have some some have some splaining to do. <laughs> See, I think by their definition, I, w- I engage in defamation de- defamation all the time here. I would have to be shut down if this piece of legislation from the United Nations somehow became binding upon the world. <clears throat> quote, in seeking to protect religion from defamation, it is clear that existing international human rights protections will be undermined, specifically freedom of religion, uh-huh, and belief and freedom of expression, uh-huh, right, yeah, said Tina Lambert, Christian Solidarity Worldwide's Advocacy Director. 
can we have some kind of a moratorium on these really long the uh, uh, titles that people are bestowing ha- having bestowed upon them <clears throat> we continue a quote for the sake of those who are already suffer unjustly under r- such legislation that are called blasphemy laws and for the protection of our existing international human rights framework it is vital that member states act to prevent such a treaty or optional protocol being established, she said. Since 1999, when the defamation of religions resolution was first proposed, uh, this is the first time that sponsors have asked for it to become a binding treaty. You see that? There it is. A binding treaty? Wouldn't that be like the equivalent of a piece of legislation? It would be, quote, against the law? Uh, Angela C. Wu, international law director for the Beckett Fund, one of the groups that signed the petition, argued human rights are meant to protect the individuals, not ideas or governments. Right on, Angela Wu. That's right. That's the thing that's kind of the problem here. Um, Law, (laughs) rights and freedoms are bestowed on people, not ideas. Yet the concept of defamation of religions further empowers governments to choose which peacefully expressed ideas are permissible and which are not. That would be, the, if, let's just say that this UN piece of binding uh, treaty le- legislation becomes binding in the United States. Uh, freedom of uh, religion, freedom of speech, uh, they're gone. Just absolutely gone, yeah. That would, that would be me uh, using my talented voice to uh, create the sound of an explosion if, for those of you who couldn't tell <clears throat> apparently i need some work on that one uh, it's pi- it's quote it's pivotal for human rights defenders around the globe to unite against this flawed concept before it becomes binding law again i asked the question when did the united Nations be the united nations become a legislative body and uh who is the emperor of the United Nations? I just, you know, who's going to sign this piece of legislation into law? You, you get what I'm saying? When did this group become some clandestine, well, maybe it's not even clandestine. When did they become a shadow government, an alternate government that uh, can impose their laws upon us? <sighs> Last month, U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton also denounced the defamation of religions resolutions, saying that such policies would restrict free speech. At least she gets this. Um, she said that while the United, Na- United States opposes religious discrimination and persecution, it saw no conflict between the ability of someone to practice his or her faith and another person's freedom of speech. I never thought I would hear myself saying this, but way to go, Hillary Clinton. Thank God you get it. Okay, one resolution was introduced in Syria on behalf of the OIC in Belarus and Venezuela in New York on October 29th. The other was proposed in Pakistan on behalf of the OIC in Nigeria and Geneva on October 30th. Uh, Groups that signed the petition, including the American Center for Law and Justice, Open Doors Jubilee Campaign, American Jewish Congress, China Aid Center for the Religious Freedom at the uh, Hudson Institute, Baptist World Alliance, uh, Anti-Defamation League, the American Islamic Congress, American Islamic Forum for Democracy, Concerned Women for America. Boy, those poor concerned women for America. What a, I mean, those poor ladies. I mean, they spend their entire lives being concerned. And the American Humanist Association, the preliminary vote on the proposed binding treaty is expected before Thanksgiving, and the final plenary vote is expected in early to mid-December. Again, my big issue, when did the United Nations become a de facto legislative body for the world? And who has veto power on this kind of stuff? 
All right. <clears throat> Another story from the Christian Post. This one by Lillian Kwan. Darwin was wrong. Scientists argue. Did I mention that these were scientists that are saying this? Scientists, I'm going to have to punch that word every time I read this story. Scientists presented evidence over the weekend refuting Charles Darwin's theory of evolution on many levels, including fossil record, natural selection, and the origin of man, and his works in geology and other science area claimed scientists. Notice I. this is not a bunch of Westboro Baptist folks, three-tooth fundamentalists, who only read the King James Version. <clears throat> yeah, that's the way they portray us, by the way. These are scientists. <clears throat> Darwin was wrong, a group of scientists argued, at a conference in Southern California. Quote, natural selection happens, but it does not do what Darwin needed it to do, said geneticist Dr. John Sanford. Darwin built a worldview that has come to be the governing paradigm of the intellectual community. That worldview is now collapsing in the face of new advances in scientists, said geneticist Dr. John Sanford. Sanford was among a number of scientists who spoke at the Darwin Was Wrong conference at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Whoops, there we go. See, that, that that completely just shoots the whole thing down. See, they were meeting not in a scientific community. They were meeting at a church. That proves that they're nothing but a bunch of three-tooth fundamentalists. <clears throat> Let me count my teeth. One, two. Where's that third one? <clears throat> number, number, <clears throat> sorry. The two-day event organized by Lagos Research Association, uh, Associates was held to mark the 150th anniversary of Darwin's Origin of Species, which people around the world have been celebrating this year. Apparently, these scientists are not celebrating it. Quote, it's amazing to me that this year, uh, that this year of Darwin, the whole world is bowing down to this, man's e- to this man, even while modern science is proving him wrong on all fronts. It, wasn't it a couple of weeks ago that Ar- Archaeopteryx got uh, all of its feathers plucked and it was, it was proven that it wasn't a transitional species at all? How about Ida? That the poor Ida completely crashed and burned in flames. Uh, <clears throat> let me try this again. Yeah, see that was better. I may have to get myself some explosion sound effects. Anyway, yeah. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. We continue. On one front, Darwin was wrong about the origin of man. Dr. Robert Carter argued Saturday. Carter refuted Darwin's three main arguments as laid out in Descendant of uh, Descent of Man or homology, uh, similar features shared among similar species, embryonic recapitulation, embryo goes through evolutionary stages, and vestigal organs, uh, organs, organs that have no apparent or predictable function. He further asserted that Darwin was a, quote, brilliant writer, but not such a great scientist. Uh, quote, Darwin's greatest gift is not as a scientist, it's as a wordsmith. <laughs> Carter maintained. The Atlanta, Georgia scientist who serves at Creation Ministries International. See, he doesn't he have to ser- t- turn in his scientist card if he believes in creation? Uh, also shot down the discovery of Lucy, Ida, and Artie as possible missing links between apes and humans. Uh-huh. Some evolutionists say Lucy was actually a man. That's awkward. Citing the shape of the pelvis, Carter pointed out, quote, so if they misclassified her as a female... Do we know if she walked upright or not? Carter posed, noting that evolutionists conclude from pelvic bones that Lucy walked upright. 
With questions being raised, Carter believes evolutionists are pushing Lucy off on the side and are preparing her to go away. So, well, if we don't have Lucy, we don't have Ida, and we don't have Artie, who do we have left to to defend transitionals, to represent transitional species in the fossil records? <clears throat> Quote, they never remove one of those ancestors until they have a replacement, though, he noted. Uh, last spring's uh, the bones of Ida were revealed. She was a lemur-like creature that was labeled uh, as another missing link between apes and non-apes, said Carter. Uh, but when the fanfare and the media hype died down, scientists realized the skeleton was just a lemur, he pointed out. Funny enough, um, Marcus Pittman, I don't know if Marcus Pittman is a scientist or not, but when Ida came out, he sent me a tweet on Twitter that basically said, uh, something to the effect of Ida looks like a lemur to me. Just saying, you know, that was his uh, view back then. And, you know, I don't even know if he's a scientist. More recently, the the media has been all over Artie, which has been touted by some as the earliest known human ancestor of modern day man and by far the most complete among those of the earliest specimens found. But Artie was actually discovered nearly two decades ago. Uh, quote, why the media blitz now? Carter, who didn't grow up a young Earth creationist, asked. I think because they're trying to find a replacement to put more missing links into the chain. So what's left? Well, not much, he maintained. In addition to shooting down evolutionary arguments, Carter offered a replacement on the origin of man using the Bible. The Bible records three historical biblical main events that would have left an indelible mark on our genetic makeup. Creation, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. Research in modern genetics underlines uh, the reality of these events he offered. Uh, other arguments uh, presented over the weekend include Darwin was wrong about science, Darwin was wrong about God, and Darwin was wrong about the disastrous social and moral consequences of his ideas. You know, I wonder if Darwin, um, if we just made evolution a religion, if uh, if uh, we could make it so that uh, that we can quiet these other scientists by claiming that they are defaming the religion of Darwin. You know, the, never mind. Uh, the conference was designed to prevent scientific evidence highlighting Darwin's mistakes and also equip Christians with such knowledge, to which I say amen, amen, and amen. Did I mention that scientists were the ones saying that Darwin was wrong? You know, just saying. Okay, um, let's see here. Looking at program notes here. Uh, all right, I'm going to do this one, and then we'll do our first break. I, I've got to i got a lot to pack into today's program. All right. Play depicting Jesus as homosexual packs church <clears throat> from the Orange County Register, the former newspaper of where I used to live. Uh, Santa Ana, California, play depicting Jesus as a gay man, that, not a happy person, but as a homosexual, played to an appreciative audience in a packed church sanctuary tonight while a handful of protesters outside called it blasphemous it was the second showing of corpus christi in orange county in about two years the show sparked protests and bomb threats bomb threats bomb threats um gotta just gotta talk to my peeps here for a second hey you folks out there that uh, understand that um homosexuality is a sin uh, phoning in a bomb threat to a church that's um, that has gone into apostasy, n- not n- n- this is not a technique that is in keeping with the gospel. Uh, remember, the gospel is this. 
Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, and he was raised again on the third day in, uh, in accordance with the scripture. So the call of the Christian gospel is repentance and the forgiveness of sins, not if you play that apostate play inside your church, we're going to blow you up. Leave that to the Muslims. Just you're just saying. Um, so you know, you know, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. This is a sin even for which Christ died. And so we need to uh, call these errant apostate brothers in this church to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Jesus, even Jesus, can forgive this sin. Why? Because he died for it. You, you see what I'm saying? See, uh, bomb threats? Not necessary. We Christians don't need bombs. We have the gospel. We have the Holy Spirit. Who needs a bomb? Seriously. Anyways, plus bombs are they're messy and they create media problems and and they just fail to lead people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus name. Keeping in mind that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not bombs. Leave the bombs to the Muslims. Uh, let's step away from that. <sighs> anyway, uh let's see here. Uh, the show sparked protests and bomb threats at its 1998 opening in the Manhattan Theater Club in New York. The play depicts Jesus as a gay man living in 1950s Corpus Christi, Texas. Playwright Terrence McNally's hometown, the cast of 13, uh, portrayed Jesus and the 12 Apostles. Uh, the Church of the Foothills in Santa Ana. Actually, no, no, this is not a church anymore. Hang on a second here. Um doing a little bit of editing on the on the news story here this is not the church of the foothills this would be the gay bathhouse hang on a second here just doing some editing okay yeah cuz this church is no longer a church because uh, the gospel's left and they're apostate okay so here we go the gay bathhouse of the foothills in santa ana received hate calls and letters in the past few days since media publicity for of the performance um See, this isn't Pastor Michael Holland. Hang on a second here. I got to, um, um, manager. Yeah, hang on, manager. There we go. Manager Michael Holland. He's not a pastor. He's he, Christian pastors. Uh, are true Christian pastors would never do something like this. So he's not a Christian pastor. He's not a pastor. Uh, he's the manager of the gay bathhouse of the foothills. Uh, manager Michael Holland said about 20 emails about the same number of telephone calls, including one Saturday from a man claiming to be a priest from Ireland and four or five letters denounced the performance. That's it. <clears throat> well, can you count me as part of this or uh, has that boat already left? Anyway, there was also an email from a local couple with a gay son who thanked the church for hosting the show. Well, that's great, but um, that kid is... Uh, needs to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of his homosexual sins. Quote, that's why we're doing this, Holland said, for all those families out there who don't feel accepted. The Bible does not condemn homosexuality as an orientation. What a load of garbage. No, it does. It. <clears throat> that's just, an, it, the Bible condemns homosexuality, period. Um, it, it condemns certain homo, homoerotic acts, which had nothing to do with people being in love, like we're doing today. What a complete bit of satanic sophistry. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, during the last scene of the play, the actors uh, light a final candle together and exit the stage, leaving the audience with the image of a single flame. <clears throat> Sorry, I sh shouldn't be doing that voice. 
<clears throat> outside the church before the play was to start shortly after 7 p.m., Todd uh, uh, Gernigan, a construction worker from Tustin, uh, joined about three other protesters calling what was uh, what was taking place inside an abomination. Now, here's the deal. I, I, Christians, listen, we ought to uh, make our presence known when other churches go apostate like this. But we've got to be real careful because we play into their hands uh, when you, you know, you, you, you just play up the judgment and stuff like that. I think a perfectly legitimate sign and a good way to kind of start a conversation would be to hold up a sign and say, they're lying to you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the real Jesus, you know, and or another sign that says Jesus died for the sin of homosexuals too. come and, and, and you know, come and we'll talk about this. So the, the idea is there is, is that when they're putting forth, when a church has gone apostate and they're hanging it out there for the world, a false Jesus. This, this is not the biblical Jesus, obviously. This is a false Jesus. And this is a, when this is occurring in the church, we Christians who um, who know the truth, who have been given the gift of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, we need to, for the sake of those there, lovingly show up and offer an alternative. Say, come talk to me about the real Jesus. You know, and, you know, come talk, you know, stuff like that. But you got to be careful here because everyone's so geared up about hate speech, you know. <clears throat> anyway, just saying. Okay, so depicting Jesus as gay, he said, is the biggest disgrace there is. No, actually, um, I gotta disagree with this uh, with Todd here. Now, Todd is a, he's a well-meaning Christian construction guy, and I appreciate the fact that uh, you know that he has righteous indignation about this church depicting Jesus as gay. However, that's not the biggest disgrace there is. The biggest disgrace is that we sinners, you and me and Todd and everybody else. Uh, we put Jesus on the cross. It was our sins that did that. Um, in more than a metaphorical way, we were the ones in the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him. See, that was the biggest disgrace, is that the one and only sinless human being to ever walk the planet, um, God incarnate, uh, we killed him. We murdered him. That's the big disgrace. The disgrace is that he we murdered him on a cross. And what we intended as evil, God used for good in that he died for the sins of the world. And so we got to be careful here. No, this is not the biggest disgrace. Is it a disgrace? Yes, it's a disgrace. And why is it a disgrace? Because it's a so-called church that's gone apostate. But again, our call is the call of the gospel that Christ gives us in Luke 24 repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And this is a sin, as disgraceful as it is, this is a sin for which Christ died. And these people uh, can receive Christ's forgiveness for even this disgraceful, abominable, idolatrous act that they've uh, that they've committed here. And so um, keep in mind, it's not the biggest disgrace, but it is a big one. But again, we should be showing up to these things and saying, come and te- let us tell you about the real Jesus. Let's tell you about the real one who offers the forgiveness of sins to all homosexuals. All right. Don Stewart of Riverside got on a bulletin on a bullhorn and shouted at those going into the performance. Why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Can anyone in the church come out and explain it to me in God's words? <clears throat> Judgment. We law and gospel. We need law and gospel, even when we're protesting. Uh, Stewart, an electrical contractor who described themselves as belonging to a community of street preachers, 
Accuse the church's pastor of teaching a faulty doctrine that's going to lead them to hell. He's absolutely right. Pastor Holland said the protesters were uh, were misinformed. No, actually, I'm sorry, it's not Pastor Holland. Manager Holland, no, they're not misinformed. You are, and you're twisting God's word. So, anyway, if you want to uh, read more about it, I, I put a, a link up to it at the Museum of Idolatry which is at a littleleaven.com. I happen to be the curator of the Museum of Idolatry. So there you have it. It, it, and it. Hey, listen, it's terrible. It's an abomination. And it's a sin for which Christ died. And so when when churches go this far astray, we really need to show up and offer them the real Jesus and proclaim the real Jesus and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. All right, we are up on our first break, um, and uh, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That is facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there again, well, pirate Christian. We will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hey, do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm, you're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no. And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You know, so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You know, so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gabble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Uh. What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book, A Skeleton in God's Closet. 
Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, with a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. Listening to this program could cause you to, well, become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor isn't giving you the goods. Well, what are the goods? Well, it's the gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified even for your sins. That's right. You, Christian, somebody who's been a Christian for all of your life, been raised in the church and been on the rat wheel of trying to please God. Oh, get off of it. You don't need to be on the rat wheel to please God. Christ has pleased God for you. How do you, can you add anything to perfect righteousness? Jesus was perfectly sinless, perfectly righteous. Not only are your sins forgiven and atoned for and God's wrath propitiated, but Christ's righteousness is imputed to you as if you're the one who lived it. You don't have to do good works to please God. God doesn't need your good works. Not one bit. You don't even need them. Your neighbor needs them. Your neighbor does need them. And you are set free in Christ and created in Christ to do good works. How could you not do them? You're a new creation in Christ. You do what you do because you are what you are. Anyway, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. And uh, <clears throat> if this uh, program has been beneficial to you, challenging you, helping you to go deeper into God's Word, into sound biblical doctrine and discernment, then please, by all means, Support us financially so we can keep doing this. <laughs> I, I, you know what's funny is I, I hate this part of the program. <laughs> Every day it's like, but I have to do it. I, I must do this. And uh, your your generous support keeps us on the air. And so right now we're looking for a 1,000 of our listeners to join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. And you can do this by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on the Join Our Crew button. And when you do, uh, you, it's signing up for a mere $6.95 a month. It's just a pittance. It's nothing. It's like one matinee movie ticket a month. And uh, once we get to 1,000 uh, listeners who've joined our crew, and we're, we've still got a long way to go, 
Um, but once we get there, then that ensures that at least on a monthly basis, we're able to meet our, our minimum amount of expenses on a monthly basis, which is kind of critical, really super importante. Because uh, if we can't pay our bills, we can't continue doing the program. That's just you know, <clears throat> capitalist society. You know, blame it on on the Caesar man if you if you like. But anyway, so again, go join the crew. And when you do, uh, we'll send you an email uh, giving you access to our secret pirate Christian cove, which is a growing treasure trove of theological resources designed to help you to go deeper into God's word, biblical theology, sound doctrine, and uh, uh, good apologetics. And uh, you do that. Uh, so join our crew, and then we'll send that uh, email off to you. I send it out a couple of times a week. It's it's very difficult to keep up with just the, the sheer volume of things that happens here at Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to donate a flat amount, you can do so by uh, clicking on the Donate button on our website or making your gift payable and sending it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, I w- I'm going to play for you some audio from a video of um of Andrew Marin interviewing Phyllis Tickle at the uh, I think it was the Cornerstone conference that occurred in Illinois over the summer and I want you to listen carefully to how she talks now uh listen you know this is an attack against the scripture and here's the deal sola scriptura teaches us that the Bible alone is the only inerrant authority when it comes to God and his word. And it, it, so here's the deal. If you say something that contradicts the scripture and you're attributing it to God, oh, no, you are wrong, wrong, wrong. And you're either uh, guilty of false prophecy, false teaching, and or probably add to the mix uh, blaspheming God's name. Okay, that's it's serious stuff. You don't want to be... Mi- making claims about God that aren't true. And here's the deal. We've learned in the scriptures is that God can't lie. God doesn't contradict his own nature. And so, and God doesn't stutter. It's just real simple. It's not like he's going to capriciously change his mind and go, oh, you know, I know back in, you know, back in Leviticus, I said homosexuality was an abomination. I, you know, I've rethunk my position. It was really unloving, unkind. I was, you know, I woke up on the wrong side of heaven that morning and you know, realized, you know, hey, I could have had a V8. Um, and so I've changed my mind. Or, you know, I, I understand that the Apostle Paul says that if you practice homosexuality that you can't inherit the kingdom of heaven. But that Apostle Paul, he was a hothead. And you know, and see, the thing is, is that you know, by today's standards, we would consider him to be a you know, a woman-hating, uh, misogynist uh, bigot. And 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 you understand that people weren't as sanctified back then as they are now. So we just forget what the Apostle Paul said. You know, forget it. No, <laughs> that's not how it works. All Scripture is God-breathed. The Scripture is. It's God-breathed, including the New Testament. And these are clear and certain words that we have from God. And it's, it is the only uh, infallible authority that we have regarding who God is, what his character is like, what he demands of us, what he's done for us. And so if you, uh, if you claim to have an authoritative word from God via a liver shiver, uh, low blood sugar, uh, ecstasis, you have stepped outside of your body and had, had, had been rolling around like a pig in the glory cloud. Um, it, you know, and you claim to have knowledge that contradicts the scripture, but claim that it's coming from God. No, 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 that's not how this works. Uh, eh, you are wrong. 
The Bible alone is our sole inerrant authority. Got it? With that in mind, here's Phyllis Tickle and Andrew Marin. Um, uh, Hello, it is me again uh, coming from Cornerstone. So we're going to continue the little interview sessions that I have rolling. And uh, I have a big privilege right now to talk to the one and only Phyllis Tickle. And uh, so obviously all of you know I've mentioned her before on the blog. And this is going to be great. Uh, by the way, I did get a chance to meet with and talk to Phyllis Tickle at the Christianity 21 conference. She's just a sweet old grandma. I mean, she's the nicest lady in the whole world. She's a heretic, and she's as far away from God's word as she could possibly be, but she's a really sweet lady. Just want to let you know that. Great for a lot of... If you'd like to see photos, they are available at Facebook. The people who read here, because she is uh, leading the charge for the emergent movement, and uh, she's coming from a completely different uh, background than we are coming from as she um, involves herself in the Episcopal Church. And so, and it's an all-inclusive place that they're at when it comes to GLBT folks. So I'm going to... Doesn't that sound loving? It's all-inclusive. That sounds so loving. No, it's not. Because uh, homosexuals are in sin. Just like people who are in uh, heterosexual shack-up relationships are in sin. Uh, just like uh, heterosexuals who are having an adulterous affair are in sin. And the call of the gospel is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. We have good news. Christ died even for the sins of homosexuals. And so, no, including them in an unrepentant state rather than calling them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, although that sounds all-inclusive and sounds really loving, it's the most hateful thing that you could possibly do. Because on the day of judgment, God's going to say, to hell with you. And they're going to turn around and look at their emergent friends and say, why didn't you tell me the truth? Ask her the same two questions. Ask everyone else and uh, we'll go from here. So thank you for being a part of thank this. Thank you, but you are so full of it. <laughs> oh, no, no, I that am. That is my first observation. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, so I'm going to wipe the brown off my nose here. Okay, all right. And, and okay. we can start fresh. Hello. Uh, hello. Nice to see you. It's nice to see you. Yeah, I've enjoyed yeah. talking to you these last couple days. Me too. Um, so we'll just bust into the two questions here. So the first one, um, as a representative of the church, capital C Church here, what would you like to say to the broader church about the gay or lesbian community? Uh, I would like to say, first of all, uh, let me speak uh, a little bit autobiographically, if I may, to, to answer that. Uh, yes, I am Episcopalian, and a member in good standing of Calvary Episcopal. But my assignment out of Calvary Episcopal through our bishop's office is the Holy Trinity Community Church, United Church of Christ Community Church, uh, which is an all-inclusive um, by gay, trans, uh, lesbian church, uh, and about 80% of our members are um, in that category, and about 20% are not. So I come with some personal experience, and obviously, some. Li- I've been a member of that communion for 10 years now, uh, and served them as a lector, a reader, and also as a lay Eucharistic minister. So I'm not sure I can be called a representative of the church capital C. With- I agree. You should not be called a representative of the church capital C. You're not even a representative of Christianity, um, Phyllis. And I know that sounds really mean and hateful, but that's the truth. And Phyllis, you've embraced false doctrine and false practice. The gospel you believe in is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the biblical gospel. And the Jesus you believe in is obviously completely different than the biblical Jesus. 
And therefore, Phyllis, we got to call you to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Repent of this false doctrine. Repent of this false view about homosexuals. You sound you sound loving and all-inclusive, but in reality, uh, when these p- folks are being cast into the lake of fire, they're going to be looking at you going, why didn't you tell me the truth? Why didn't you tell me to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of even my homosexual sins? That's some prejudice, if you All right. Um, to it. But the, the church itself... It's going to have to come to grips with the fact that we have changed um, over the years. We have evolved the law. Um, we now admit divorce. Our Lord does not speak much about sexuality. Uh, notice uh, we now see. Here's the deal. She's saying, "Oh, well, we we admit divorce, and uh, so we the things have changed. God's word hasn't changed." The church has become more unfaithful to God's word and what he said on a daily basis. It gets worse and worse and worse. Yes, things have changed, but God's word hasn't. His law hasn't. But he's very clear about divorce. Uh, It's the only thing he's really clear about. And we've managed because out of compassion, and I certainly am for that change, uh, out of compassion, uh, and out of common sense, and out of a record. So, out of compassion, we've we've wiped away the thing about who cares about divorce. Uh, we're being compassionate now to people who want to, you know, get, get out of a out of the, of a marriage. It's not a sin. Recognition that our times and ways of being are different from those. Um, we have managed to get around the divorce issue and now even ordain divorced clergy and, and, and that kind of thing. The same thing is going to happen with the gay issue. Uh, it's in process, but you can look. So notice she's not appealing to God's clear teaching in God's word. She's making an appeal to how we've changed and therefore that's obviously we're right in doing so. It's all in the name of compassion and love. Uh, but uh, really, what about fidelity to God's word? God doesn't change. Uh, right from uh, the 1850s, you can see a progression, a change. In the 1850s, churches split over the slavery question. And it, mm-hmm. it was true, honest. Uh, it was religious difference. It was scriptural differences of opinion. Uh, the Bible doesn't say go own people. But it certainly recognizes slavery as a possibility, and it even provides for it and sort of condones it, if you will. We got over that because it didn't make sense. Uh, We got over feminism. So, see, because the church divided over slavery, we got over it. Uh, Or we got over uh, the need for equality of the genders. Uh, And again, the Bible... No, she's not appealing to what God's Word actually teaches and says. And this is not not even a look fairly at what the Bible teaches regarding slavery or feminism or anything like that. It's just, hey, times have changed. We've evolved. Apparently, God's been behind that change the entire time as we wander farther and farther and farther and farther and farther away from God's Word pretty clear. Paul is certainly clear about the role of, of the genders, uh, and it didn't work in our society. So, th- uh, so I'm glad she admits that Paul's clear about the role of the genders, because Paul wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't work in our society. You see, the culture dictates what's true. We gotta, we, we gotta, we gotta adapt to the times, man. 
get hit. This is liberalism. This is the last, and then we then we did the you know we did the divorce thing, uh, and, and so there's a sort of progression, if you will, of sociological shifts over the last 150 years, 160 years, and this is the la- I, I tell audiences it's the last puck in a mm. deadly game, the last playing piece, if you will, yeah. in a deadly game, and if anybody on either side of the issue fails to understand what really is the issue, and the issue really is. Uh, isn't the issue what God has said? Absolute sola scriptura, scripture only and only scripture. Uh, did God put a period at the end of Revelation or did he put a comma? Uh, see, there it is. Did God put a period at the end of Revelation or did he put a comma? So apparently, I mean, God can tell you to go any particular direction, you know, that you see fit. Just stick your finger in the wind, figure out which way the winds of the spirit are blowing and and go with it. Who needs a Bible? Come on. Um, And once you understand that when we make this change, and we will make it, there's no question. I mean, it's essentially a a dead issue right now. If I were going to get hysterical, I would be hysterical about the transgenders for whom this is not a solved issue. Oh, so it's it's over. The, The liberals won. God's word lost. DNA mosaic. Because there's a comma at the end of Revelation, not a period. Apparently, she's blaming this on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the one who guided them into these changes. Hmm? Um, those people whose bodies uh, are neither fish nor fowl, the hermaphrodites, the Turner syndromes, uh, those folk for whom there is no compassion on either side. Um, but the, the truth of it is, we're going to get over this. We just have to understand that when we do, it's the la- it is the last place. It's, it's, it's the last stance, if you will, for sola scriptura. And, and, you know, if, if we're bright... She might as well be making the case. This is the last stand for God's word, period. I mean, at this point, it's just anything goes. We do not have an authoritative word anymore because now we've got a comma at the end of Revelation. And, you know, we've got to somehow believe that God is speaking through all these different people who are claiming that the Holy Spirit had led them to ordain homosexuals and to bless homosexual marriage. Yet God's word clearly says it's an abomination. Who are you going to believe? Them claiming that this is the Holy Spirit inspired them to do these things? Or God's word that says, no, this is a sin. We will recognize that divorce wasn't the best thing that ever happened to the human race uh, or to the human home. But it was a necessary uh, adjustment, and we've paid a price for it. But we probably would have paid a greater price had we not had it. I think the same thing is true here. Great, great. So there you have Phyllis Tickle um, waxing eloquent. Um, on the uh, issue of homosexuality. And the reason I played that is because it just shows you so clearly the problem. And what's the problem? They've abandoned God's word and think that the Holy Spirit is guiding them into something that that God's word is completely opposed to. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, does not stutter. He's not capricious. He does not change his mind. The thing that the thing that he inspired to be written as an abomination and the thing by which he said, do not be deceived, neither homosexuals, uh, men who practice homosexuality or adulterers or idolaters will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Yet that, let me point that out to first Corinthians chapter six. This is really simple, really, really simple. And you just look at the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me find this here. 
<laughs> now I understand this is law, but I want to I want to show you the time frame here. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, just got a question for you. When, when do we inherit the kingdom of God? When do we experience, when do we, when is the inheritance ours? Today? Now? Or when Christ returns? This inheritance talk in the text says they will not, will not, future tense, by the way, there, uh, yeah, let me let's see here. Ha uh odate. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, pl- uh, plural perfect active. Okay. Yeah, will not. Uh, they, you know, having action on into the future. Um, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's talking eschatologically. Period. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor swindlers or revilers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I want to point something else also in this text. Now, it's not saying that if you are guilty of committing the sin of sexual immorality, the sin of idolatry, the sin of adultery, the sin of homosexuality, of stealing or being greedy or drunkenness or being a reviler or a swindler. If you're guilty of any of those sins, this text is not saying that you are disqualified from the kingdom of God. And the reason I say that is because verse 11 says, And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Christ died for these sins. And so the text itself, I'm going with the text. I'm going with the Holy Spirit. I'm going with the Apostle Paul. The text itself says that these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is an eschatological statement of a future coming kingdom that we will inherit. So it doesn't matter what the people are doing today. We don't have to get with the times and say, oh, well, this is what the culture wants. And these are the times that this is the thing that we need to do now because things are a changing. No, the text itself says eschatologically talking about the future inheritance that we will inherit when Christ returns that the sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, and homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. That means from the time this was written until the inheritance is revealed when Christ returns, there will be nobody who is an active, practicing, unrepentant adulterer or homosexual who does not trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, who will inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the text says. 
So we don't have to, quote, get with the times or change our views because the times are changing. And apparently there's a comma at the end of Revelation. No. This statement itself includes from the time it was written for all time and even to the time of Christ's return and the visible inheriting of the kingdom of God. None but nobody. This is a sin for which people will be excluded and judged from the kingdom of God. That's what the text says. I'm going with the text. Going with the text. I, I As lovely and as charming and as grandmotherly and matronly and loving as Phyllis Tickle is. I mean, she's just a delightful lady to meet in person. What she said is absolutely contradictory to scripture. And her religion will send people to hell. And sadly, probably her too. All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, I'm going to talk about uh, the business uh, culture that is being adopted by the uh, seeker-driven guys. I'll play a little bit of audio from an interview with Seth Godin, of all people. You know, if you know, if you're in the business world, you know Seth Godin. Just weird that these seeker-driven guys—they're adopting business culture while the liberals are adopting liberal academic culture. <laughs> what a strange world we live in. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, again, pirate Christian. We will be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. 
said Paul Erdman of the New York Times. With a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. The holiday travel season is rapidly approaching, and the last thing you want to do, especially in these economic times, is pay more for airfare and travel expenses than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, I kid you not, that's their name, provides travel services that you need at the lowest possible prices. Cheapo Air is an eight-time consecutive HitWise U.S. Top 10 Award winner for diversified travel services. So if you're looking for low-cost airfares for the upcoming holiday season, Cheapo Air has what you're looking for. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, that's right, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, you will find on that page a special promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of any airfare or travel services that you purchase at Cheapo Air. That's right. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and book your holiday travel today. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith straight ahead. All right, so I've been using, well, not using, mulling over the uh, definition of a liberal in uh, Wilkins' article on uh, Bible-believing liberals. It's Gene Veith's uh, definition, and that definition is, liberalism is changing your theology to fit whatever the culture is. Now, listen, there's different aspects of the culture. But um, the the one thing, if you if you take a look at the seeker driven movement, the purpose driven movement, um, it, they cater to different cultural types. Uh, the majority of them seem to be centering in on uh, American middle class suburbanites, um, but uh, you know some of them kind of wander into different directions. But liberalism is changing your theology to fit whatever the culture is. So one of the things I've been paying real close attention to is as as I visit the blogs of these um, of the so-called thought leaders of the seeker-driven movement and the seeker-driven methodology, um, these guys are reading a lot of the books that um, that you would expect to read in well undergraduate business courses. Um, if you are doing continuing education in a corporation, and some of them are MBA level. Uh, type courses, uh, uh, books on leadership. Uh, I mean, I've got a lot of these books even in my library. Good to Great, uh, Patrick Lencioni's books, uh, uh, his uh, his fables, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, uh, stuff like that. Leadership principles of Colin Powell. Uh, the right books by well, stuff by Seth Godin on marketing. You know, his book on purple cows is brilliant. Uh, his ideas uh, again. So, but here's the deal: these guys. They've the, if you really want to understand what the common denominator is, because they all appeal 
to slightly different cultural uh, groups and, and they're targeting different cultural groups. But the one thing they all have in common is, is that they have sucked up and have completely bought into American Fortune 500 corporate business best practices. And even Rick Warren himself, I mean, a lot of the things that he developed in his methodology, uh, he developed in conversation with uh, Peter Drucker. So the thing, if you want to understand the seeker-driven movement, it's corporate liberalism. It's American corporate business liberalism. They have adapted, they've changed their theology to fit the culture of uh, American consumerism and the co- companies that uh, basically are you know, trying to capture the business of people. And so what they've done is, is they've bought into the same kind of metrics that decide what's successful and what isn't successful, the same metrics that, are, uh, that decide what's successful in the corporate world are now being, being applied in the church. The church has become a, a, as an industry, if you would. The problem is, is that the church is not an industry. The church is the body of Christ called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations and is called to go and make disciples, not happy, satisfied customers. There's a big difference, really world of difference between those two concepts. That being the case, I was, uh, you know, in prep and doing my prep for the show today, I was on the Catalyst website, Catalyst is one of these big seeker-driven hoorah conference types things. They have two of these every year. They have Catalyst East and Catalyst West. Catalyst. Um, it, so, so basically these are people who are cow herders? Catalysts? <clears throat> Maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, I would like to play for you a little audio of them interviewing marketing guru Seth Godin. Here we go. Seth Godin at, uh, in Hastings on Hudson. Uh, yes. You are wearing mismatched socks right now. And they're not even my best pair. If I had known you were going to wear them, I would have worn So they invited Seth Godin to be a speaker at one of the Catalyst conferences, and this is them interviewing them kind of in person. The audio on this really is bad. You would think these marketing guys would uh, do have better chops. I mean, here they have the state-of-the-art, cutting-edge uh, conference thingy that they do and yet they can't even get audio right on a video there's three kinds of mismatched socks kind of sort of and lot of these are kind of mismatched because as you can see the patterns and the colors complement each other sort of might have different colors but same pattern and a lot of would be different patterns and different colors right so these, this is just a kind of pair and I didn't wear anything special today just normal mismatched and you, and you were telling me that you do that to remind you of a company that uh, sends you these socks, sends well, you by a case. It's not that I need to be reminded of the company. It's I need to be reminded of the, the idea. And the principle is that ideas that spread wind, that if you make boring socks, you will make boring profits, you will make a boring impact on the market because there are so many replacements. If there are no replacements, if it's the one and only, then people will go out of their way to talk about it, to find out about it, to acquire it, and to spread the word. And that distinction didn't used to be true 30 years ago. And now it's true about everything, even something as banal as socks. 
Okay. <clears throat> Still a topic of conversation when people talk about capitalist early. And uh, you were a favorite. My brother was there. Um, that was his first catalyst. And when I asked him, hey, who were some of the guys that impacted you most, you were at the top of the list. Um, I love hearing from you. Everybody else we've talked about just really nice. Thank you. Well, it's true. Um, I wanted to ask you, for our Catalyst audience, that was your first experience with Catalyst. What was it like for you being there? Um, you were surrounded by 11,000 church leaders. Okay, now listen, I don't think Seth Godin's a Christian. He's not made his, uh, you know, basically his stick has nothing to do with Christianity. It has to do with marketing and being successful. Uh... We loved having you. What was it like for you? What was your experience like at Catalyst? Well, you know, I think that it's easy to come to the conclusion that it's a church-related conference. And that was my expectation going in, but it's not. (laughs) Seth Godin, it would be easy to think that it's a church-related conference, but it's not. What is it, Seth? It's a leadership conference. Oh, it's a leadership conference. So what became clear shortly after I got there is I was surrounded by 11,000 leaders who just happened to be part of a loosely affiliated movement, not part surrounded by 11,000, you know, uh, march-stepping evangelicals. That distinction is really critical because uh, there is no homogeneous uh, industry, including the church, and the church is an industry. He just said the church is an industry. No, it's not. I think that what Catalyst represents is a piece of the side, a group of people who like talking about things, changing things, interacting with things, questioning things, uh, figuring out which ideas are going to spread and then spreading them. Boy, that is quite a confession on his part. They like changing things, uh, finding out which ideas are going to spread and then spreading them. Christians are not, pastors are not called to change anything. They're called to faithfully proclaim what has been delivered. Huh. Out of the mouths of non-Christians. That's a really rare thing to find in people. And the idea that there would be 11,000 people who all wanted to do that in one place was, for me, the biggest thing. Well, on the trip up here... um, I sent a, a Twitter out, a tweet, which I know you don't tweet, <clears throat> and I, I respect the reason why you don't tweet. I think it's fantastic. I have to admit, I don't do it as well as I should, and so by such standards, I should stop, but I'm trying to get better. You only do what you do when you do it well, and so you're choosing to focus your efforts um, where you want to. But I sent a, a tweet out, and I, I just said, I'm headed up to um, up north to meet with Seth Godin. What is one question you would ask? And quickly, within about 30 seconds, I got a response. response. Um, He said, uh, and this is appropriate given what you just talked about the Catalyst. If you were to go back, knowing what you know now about Catalyst, knowing about your experience and what you just shared, if you could go back and say one thing to these 11,000 leaders that just happened to be in the church, what would you say to them? I guess the question is, uh, why do we settle? What is it that makes us say that? Whatever that is, is good enough. The problem with existing organizations is they encourage us to settle. If you work on an assembly line at General Motors, you are encouraged to settle for putting that tire on that car right now. Because General Motors has been doing this for 100 years, 
And it's not your job to say that tire doesn't belong in that car. What I think is so important for us to do as our economy resets, as the industrial revolution of our age is shaped, is to decide what we're going to settle for and why. And it's so easy to be brainwashed into settling for the status quo when you're in an organization that would like to believe that it's right or that it's doing something that's been written down and ordained. <clears throat> well, Seth Godin sounds like he's uh, not advocating for uh, settling with what God's word teaches is true. This is he's a voice of rebellion. Don't settle. Is it, is it and again, he's doing this because he doesn't want to settle with the status quo in the business world. He wants better results. He wants better whatever. <clears throat> yeah, I think Gene Veith's uh, definition of liberalism, liberalism is changing your theology to fit whatever the culture is, is exactly what the seeker-driven guys are doing, and that's exactly why they are inviting men from the corporate world like Seth Godin to come and teach them how to not settle and to change. Change what? The message. That's what he said. For the church industry. <clears throat> anyway, I think we've heard enough of that. Anyway, it was that particular little light bulb interview that um, that made me decide to choose the sermon that I will be reviewing today. And with that, it is now time for sermon review time here at Fighting for the Faith. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. Today's sermon is entitled Chase the Lion Seizing Opportunities. This is part of a sermon series um, loosely based upon Mark Batterson's book, Chase the Lion. Mark Batterson being one of the so called thought leaders of the seeker-driven guys and is a darling among the catalyst crowd. Those who are changing the message in order for it to fit corporate culture. When you think when you hear them talk about their multi-sites, think McDonald's franchise. When they refuse to answer questions, when they do not tolerate people who question their vision and mission statements, think intolerance of competition. They want to be McDonald's, they do not want to be Burger King. And therefore, if you want things to be done Burger King's way, don't you dare come here. We're going to throw you out because those are subversive ideas to the mission and vision that we have here at Corporate Church Incorporated. <clears throat> Sorry. Sounded like I'm getting a little exercise here. By the way, our sermon today is preached by two guys. I know one of them. It's Dan Winkleman. Winkleman. And this is from Highland Church in Plover. Wisconsin. I guarantee that if I end up moving to Plover, Wisconsin, I will not 
be attending and or having communion with Winkleman at his McDonald's franchise there in Titled Highland Church. Anyway, let's um, kill that. So without any further ado, here is Chase the Lion seizing opportunities. Today is seizing opportunities. Seizing opportunities. So today we are going to share about the opportunities that God has for us to seize. Um, And just reading for this message a little bit and sitting over a nice cup of Starbucks coffee brought to mind um, a man named Howard Schultz. Um, Back in 1987. What? Already we are off on the wrong foot. We're going to... Oh, man. Howard Schultz, the coffee guy? Howard Schultz um, decided to buy a small chain of coffee stores that were, were only in the city of Seattle, Seattle, Washington. Uh, and and he, he decided that he would start by, uh, by just setting, setting what in his mind was a pretty, pretty high goal. In a year, he wanted to have one coffee shop in Portland, Oregon. He thought that after a year's time, maybe he could expand the business enough to have one coffee shop in Portland, Oregon. Okay, I need to remind you all, folks, that uh, this business story about coffee and Starbucks, um, not found in your Bible. You will not find, you can, you can search your computerized Bible all you want. You will not find anything about Schultz, Starbucks, or coffee in your Bible. I'm just saying. Which he needed to do because he had invested $4 million into purchasing Starbucks coffee. Uh, so, so he, Howard, worked and worked and, and looked at different ways of, of doing business and how he could expand his business model to go beyond just one city to go into multiple cities. Well, within six years, Starbucks had grown and multiplied and multiplied to where it was being traded on the stock market for, let me get the number exact here, 2 million, no, $237 million. So this $4 million investment multiplied a little bit uh, in those years. And even now, in a difficult economy, where people are cutting back and cutting back, Starbucks is thriving. They're one of the top traded uh, companies on the stock market. And probably every one of us has a coffee machine in our own home <laughs> that we can sit down, turn it on, and brew our own cup of coffee. Yet millions of people all over the world are spending two, three, four. If you go with Morgan Brady, you can spend up to six fifty on a drink <laughs> at Starbucks. He, that's right. He goes in there and, and he's taken a picture with his iPhone of what his drink should look like because it's a special order. And he holds up and says, it should look like this when you're done. And if it doesn't, I'll have you remake it. He knows what he wants and he gets it. But Howard Schultz grabbed, seized, took an opportunity to buy a little chain of coffee stores. Every day in the world, five Starbucks open. In the world, five new coffee shops open. That was how many there were 
when he first purchased it back in 1987. Total in the world were five. Now, wow, whoa, that's so. Um, it's not spiritual, is it? What does this have to do with the Bible? Every day, five new Starbucks coffee stores open. Um, Mark Batterson says he's convinced that eventually you're going to find a Starbucks in a Starbucks. <laughs> that there'll be so many of them. There's one st one corner now in in the hometown in Seattle, Washington, where you can stand, and there's a Starbucks on each one of the four corners of that block, and you can choose which one you want to go to. It sounds ridiculous, but this man took the chance, seized the opportunity, and did something with it. Um, so you can, uh, you can look at that and say, well, he was a good businessman, which, yes, he was. You can look at that and say, people really love coffee, which, yes, we do. But if he hadn't decided to seize the opportunity that he had, invest $4 million that he didn't have at the time, we wouldn't have Starbucks coffee brewing here in our church. His so what? Who cares? Your job, pastor, is to actually open up the Bible and preach the word. Who cares if there isn't a Starbucks or not? I mean, I don't know if you're aware of this, but for the last two millennia, the Christian church has been able to survive without Starbucks. It is a Johnny-come-lately in the history of the Christian church. Influence has spread so wide that every, almost every corner of the world knows Starbucks coffee. And so because it has such big influence, that means it's of God? What does this have to do with the Bible and Christianity and Christ and him crucified for our sins? Is the Schultz guy a Christian? And um, I once was told that it was good for every pastor to have an addiction because it keeps them humble. And uh, my addiction is Starbucks coffee. Um, I don't think there's been one birthday or pastor appreciation or Christmas in the last four years that I haven't gotten a Starbucks gift card. And for that, I say thank you for feeding my addiction. <laughs> you are all my enablers. <laughs> but the fact is God has called for us to step up and seize opportunities that are presented to us that are what where in the bible does it say that god is asking us to step up and seize opportunities what book of the bible are you reading what translation are you reading are in our lives that are in front of us and I'm not just talking business opportunities. We're not just talking about grabbing a hold of good things in life that make us feel good or help us make money or give us opportunities to enjoy life, but seizing the true opportunities of what God has for our lives. Now, many times it's easy for us to allow those opportunities to just kind of float down the river, to go by because it looks too big or it looks too challenging or it's we don't have the $4 million. We don't have... Is it a sin if I let those opportunities go floating down the river? ...the time it takes. We don't have the energy. We don't have the abilities of, of what we think it takes to accomplish that opportunity. Whatever happened to the preaching of, of law and gospel, sin and repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Is this some kind of new form of uh, hellfire and brimstone preaching? 
Are you guilty of not seizing the opportunities that God has laid out before you? <gasps> you are guilty. And you are going to go to hell, but I've got good news. Christ died for the opportunities that you did not seize. Repent, therefore, and seize away. This is crazy. But God has created us to take a hold of opportunities. So this morning we're going to talk about that. Who knows that there's not a spiritual Howard Schultz sitting here. That if you're willing to grab an opportunity that God puts in front yeah, of you. Yeah, and if you are, we just want to make sure, you know, we do believe in tithing. Yes. Yeah. That's definitely Yeah, true. that's a... So, so you know, maybe, just maybe, you know, if you commit to the Lord, no. We, right. That, no, that whole thing, maybe it'll help you a little bit. Definitely. So maybe that's you today and God is just waiting for you to hear this message that you will seize that spiritual opportunity. So, uh, Pastor Dan, why don't Amen. you... I think uh, the big idea that we want to try to get across to you today is this, that, that we will make the most of every opportunity, not just the big ones or the small ones or the ones that we think that we can handle, but that we will develop a, a, a DNA within our church family, within our own individual lives. By the way, all this DNA talk, that's corporate business talk. You want to create the DNA of a corporation or of an organization. So they're going to create the DNA of a a bunch of opportunity seizers. Ooh, great. And what does this have to do with proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? Nothing. This is another form of liberalism. This is a liberalism that has mixed corporate ideas with their theology, or basically they've completely abandoned sound biblical teaching and doctrine to, to preach the DNA of opportunity Caesars. Is that we will take and make the most of every opportunity. So that's the big idea, is learning how to make the most of every opportunity. I can't wait to hear how the Bible gets brought into this. Because, of course, you do realize they have to try to baptize this with the Bible in order to create some kind of a veneer that this is at least a Christian sermon, which it isn't. And um, to do this, I think we have to do we have to have a few things going on in our life that I want to talk about. And the first one is that we need to understand the source of opportunities. Now, we we know that, you know. Uh, for God opportunities, God is the source. But what I want to do is just kind of uh, maybe uh, dive into that a little bit more, into the etymology of the word uh, that we get opportunity from. And uh, uh, Colossians uh, 5, if you want to turn there, we're going to... We're going to get into the etymology of the word opportunity. Oh, boy. We're going to read out of Colossians. No, I'll make it Colossians 4. Uh, verses 2 to 5. Uh, we're going to read out there because we want to we want to kind of take a look at the uh, et- uh, verses 2 to 5. Colossians 4 verses 2 to 5. Proof texting galore here. Um, we're not reading this in context. By the way, Colossians is a fantastic uh, epistle about Jesus and about what he's done. I mean, the gospel is so wonderfully clearly proclaimed in the book of Colossians. Um, Kind of a tragedy that we're just going to read just two verses and and not hear about what Christ did for us. Etymology of the word opportunity as it it, it appears in Scripture. So let me... (laughs) Okay, I cannot wait for this. Oh, boy. Read Colossians 4, verse 2 to 5 to help us understand the source 
of God opportunities. How do we understand if it's a God opportunity or something that's going to really jeopardize us or the ones we love? Yeah, this is important since you're going to be just, you're telling everyone they need to go out and seize opportunities. What if they grab the wrong one? It's like grabbing a tiger by the tail might turn around and bite you. And so we need to understand the source of opportunity. First of all, the Bible says, devote yourself to prayer. I want you to say that with me. Devote yourself to prayer. Devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too. Pray for Nathan and I and our staff. That God may open a door for our message, the message of the gospel, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which Paul said, I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should and be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Oh, man, you've got to be kidding me. Hang on a second here. I want to see what he's doing with the Greek here, if he's even... uh, um, yeah, exagorazo. Hang on a second here. Uh, that uh, to redeem extension of the act, uh, purchase something in the marketplace to make the most of. Um, okay. I want you to underline that making the most of every opportunity because that word opportunity in the very Greek is keros, which means a un- unexpected or unforeseen. Okay, hang on a second. He's using Kairos here. All right, hang on a second here. Um, to redeem Chiron. Okay, time or season or opportunity. To redeem the time. Um, just looking this and kind of doing some rough translation in my head here. Kairos is time or season. Why? Huh? Window of opportunity, unexpected and unforeseen are the key words there. It's, it's unexpected or unforeseen window of opportunity, which means that we don't always see the opportunities. So the idea is learning to see and seize God opportunities in your life. And I want to try to help us to understand. You've got to be kidding me. That, that is, oh my goodness. Hang on a second here. Context, context, context. And I think he's using the NIV, I think. Here, let me read this in the uh, in the ESV here real quick. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, and at the at at the time at the same time pray also for us that God may open for us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So the, the prayer is not just to steadfastly in, or to dedicate yourself just to prayer. It, it Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it in thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, to proclaim the gospel, Christ and him crucified for our sins, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I, I ought to speak, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that they may know how you ought to answer each person but notice here we've um we've missed the proclamation of the gospel and what christ has done for us and we've gone to some kind of a commandment thing why because these guys don't understand the gospel they only understand the law so we're in law law land again 
devote yourself to prayer. And we're reading this out of context and we're drawing incorrect conclusions. This is at the tail end of the book of Colossians. And Paul is putting in some personal notes here. Pray for us that we might have an opportunity to declare the mystery of Christ. What's the mystery of Christ? That he's God in human flesh, died on the cross for our sins, raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the mystery of Christ in a nutshell. That's the opportunity that Paul's asking him to pray for and to be steadfast in prayer for, that they may have an opportunity to declare Christ. Let's see what formula he's come up with. And what the source of that is and how we do that. And again, remember, it's not just talking about the big job change or the career change or getting the degree or doing this. Or, it could very well mean that today there is a God opportunity for you to do a random act of kindness to someone that's going to change their life. No, that is not what that text says or teaches. It doesn't say that at all. But the problem is, are you observant enough? Are you observant enough to understand the source of those opportunities and, and see them? Are you observant enough? <clears throat> Hang on a second here. Let me clear the pipes. <clears throat> la, la, la. La, la, la. I should not try out for American Idol. La, la, la. Thank you. I'll be here all week. It might be that, you know, God's opportunity is for you to ask for forgiveness to someone that you've offended or hurt. And, you know, we just kind of like blow by those opportunities. But they're God opportunities, and they will have a dramatic return in your life and the lives of others. So not just large opportunities, but even the smaller opportunities that are unexpected and unforeseen. So how do we see these opportunities? How do we, how do we understand when God's opportunities are coming towards us? I want to take a look at the actual uh, root word uh, that we get from the English word opportunity. It comes from the Latin word... <laughs> The <laughs> comes from the Latin. Uh, which book of the Bible was written in Latin? It, which uh, which seminary did you learn Latin in as a biblical language? It's not a biblical language. Um, ab portu, ab portu. That's a weird. Isn't that? That's kind of like what? <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but but that Latin word has this idea. Back when the ports, you know, when ships would come into ports before there were modern ports. They couldn't just come in because they weren't deep enough. So what they had to do is they had to wait outside the port, waiting for the tide to change. I mean, doesn't it sound so biblical because he's saying that he's, he's telling us what the etymology of the Latin word for opportunity is. So that they could catch that tide change at the right moment so that they could come in and unload their goods and do whatever they had to do, do their business. If they missed that tide change, they had to wait until the next one. So what I'm trying to say is a lot of time, God's opportunities come to us in waves or tides. Oh, you. I'm 
sorry, Dan. Thanks for playing. We have some lovely parting gifts for you. Oh, man. that What? And that very word has that idea that we sometimes have to be alert. So when is the tide changing? When is God speaking to us? When has God given us opportunities that we need to seize? Why don't you actually preach the Bible so we can actually hear what God actually said? Instead of waxing eloquent about the Latin of the uh, from the root word of the English on opportune. Oh, for oh, oh, this is just an abomination. And so learning the etymology of those words... It, it helps us at nothing at all. It doesn't help us one bit. It gives us an idea that we have to be waiting and looking for them because it's like an ebb and flow. They go in and out of our lives sometimes and we don't even recognize it. <laughs> oh, man. I'm sorry that uh, <clears throat> Dan does not actually, he's not really a pastor and he really shouldn't be playing one on the radio. Oh. or acknowledge it. So we miss God opportunities. Here's what I wanted to just share real quickly, and that is that these divine opportunities, if we will seize them, will change the tide within your life. Right. Nope, that's not what the scriptures teach. You're just winging it, dude. You're just making stuff up. Now, that might just go right over your head, but how many of you sitting here today need a little tide change in your life? <laughs> Things are going in a direction and the current of life is dragging you out to sea. Can you have an altar call for the people who need a tide change? If Come on, raise your hand. I, I, with all heads bowed and all eyes closed, those of you out there who need a tide change, will you please raise your hand so that we can pray that God will change your tide? And you need to see God move in your life and make a change so that you can get into port where you belong. And so what you have to do is like those captains did, those ob portu, the opportunities, wait for the tide, God. <laughs> He's actually exegeting the Latin etymology of opportunity. Ay, ay, ay. God's tide and move with him. And so we have to be alert to that. But how do we be alert to that? See, God opportunities are not always so obvious, are they? Well, they're, they're awfully tricky to figure out. Can you give me a God opportunity uh, pair of sunglasses that'll help me spot them quicker? Uh. You see, as people, we're spiritually blind. Well, that makes it difficult. I see, I can't even use a pair of uh, opportun God opportunity sunglasses to spot them. We're spiritually blind. And it's hard for us to see what God is doing all around us. His it's just downright impossible at times. I mean, how am I supposed to seize these opportunities if I'm spiritually blind? I need to find them, see them. Opportunities and activity is happening all around you right now. But because we are spiritually blind because of sin, we're not always able to see what God is doing. <clears throat> this is just so convoluted. Okay, yeah, okay. So I'm spiritually blind because of sin, so I can't seize, I can't seize those opportunities because I can't see them. 
And so we need to believe that God is going to help us to see his opportunities. And so if I, if, so I need to believe that God will help me see him because that way God, then God will know that I have done the right thing so that I can see him because I'm spiritually blind and I can't see him. Could you put this on a map for me? You know, um, I'm, you should whiteboard this because I'm confused. I mean, I've seen in corporate conference uh, rooms people using a whiteboard often. Could you whiteboard this out for me so that you can explain what it is I have to do in order to see the opportunities that I need to seize? Because I'm a little lost here because none of this is actually taught in the Bible. Um, so could you, you know, help me visualize this concept? And here's how we do that. We devote ourselves to prayer because la, la, la. No, that's by the way, that's not what Colossians 2 teaches. You've ripped it out of context. It's not what it says to do. It doesn't say that if you devote yourself to prayer, that you will be able to see the opportunities that you can't see because of your fallen sinful nature that you're blinded to so that you can see them and then you'll seize them. Prayer opens our eyes to see God's opportunity. If you don't have... No, that's not what that text says at all. You're lying. Have a prayer life. God's opportunities are coming in and out just like the tide in your life, and you don't observe them or recognize them. Oh, no. That sounds terrible. I mean, if I'm not... If I, if I don't have a devoted prayer life, I mean, all these opportunities are coming in and going out, and I don't even realize it? Gasp. I've been duped. And that's why as a church, we have just constantly called you to a personal relationship to Jesus Christ through prayer. But so that they can seize those opportunities. Isn't it something how the enemy works to keep us away from prayer? Yeah, because he doesn't want us to seize those opportunities. Could you imagine what would happen to the devil's kingdom if all these Christians, well, their eyes were open because they devoted themselves to prayer and then they started seizing all those God opportunities that were flowing in and out with the tide? I mean, in our flesh, we hate to pray. In our flesh, we don't want to come before God and act like we're in need and uh, we can do this on our own. But God says, if you don't come to the place of prayer, your eyes aren't going to be open to see his opportunities. Uh, no. The Bible doesn't say that. You're lying. And so to make the most of every opportunity, to seize the opportunity, we have to devote ourselves to prayer. And what's that next word right next to it? Devote yourself to prayer and what? It's okay. Just read it right off your scripture there. (laughs) Devote yourself to prayer and be watchful. Be watchful. That whole idea of being watchful goes way back. Oh, this is all law. There is no gospel here at all. And boy, he's, whew, yeah. Um, let me read it again in the NIV because I want He's taken the two, five, uh, uh, two, three, four, and five out of context. And this is turned into a, something you've got to do. This is a formula. If you do this, then you will seize the opportunities. But that's not what it says. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful. I'm reading in the NIV, which is the translation he's used. Devote yourselves to prayer and being being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Why don't you just proclaim the mystery of Christ to us, Dan, uh, for which I am in chains? Pray that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. This passage does not say that there are there are God-sized opportunities ebbing and flowing in your life 
regardless of what he thinks the Latin is on this, it wasn't written in Latin, and and that the way you seize those God-sized opportunities that you're blind to is by devoting yourself to prayer and being watchful. That's not what this text says at all. Back to the days when they had walls around the city, and they called them watchmen on the walls. And what they do is they'd stand up on the wall and they just look out in the distance and they were, they, they were saying, we need to observe what's going on. There may be enemies approaching. We need to sound the alarm. There may be traitors coming that is going to benefit our economy and people that we love, family, friends, and whatever, we want to open the gates up to. You see, we have to be observant. And because we're spiritually blind, our eyes are closed and prayer opens our eyes to God's opportunities. Not always the big ones. No. No, no, that is not what this text says at all. You are lying. You think God is going to just turn a blind eye to you mangling his word this way, Dan? Right up front, but it might be that little one of just loving someone that that needs loved at that moment in their life. And so seizing opportunities comes down to having prayer opening our eyes. Because here's the deal. Prayer, people who pray are proactive in this way. It's proactive that it puts our spiritual antennas up. It actually causes us to see something. Uh, it, what if I don't want a spiritual antenna? I don't particularly like them. Can I get some spiritual curb feelers instead? It actually causes us to, as one um, Aramaic word says, set the trap. <laughs> What would that Aramaic word be? Just randomly pick an Aramaic word to make it sound like you actually know what you're doing. This is ridiculous. On those opportunities to catch them. And so prayer opens our eyes to see. Being watchful opens our ability to grab onto those uh, God opportunities. No, that's not what the Bible says at all. I like the set the trap idea. Yeah. Like there's these God opportunities. (laughs) I don't, because it's not even biblical. Opportunities just wandering around like animals, and the prayer just snap, snaps them and grabs them. But, I mean, I think of you as a trapper. If, if you had- What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> no, he did not just say that. No, this is just... <laughs> oh, man. These guys are rolling their own theology. I... <laughs> Oh, this is bad. Hang on a second. (laughs) You know, those opportunities, you know, they're like wild animals out there. They're just wandering around, and you got to set the trap through your prayers and snap. There you go. You got yourself one of them opportunities. This is like a snipe hunt. Hey. (laughs) Hang on a second. Back in the tape up. Back in the tape up. I want to hear this in context. <clears throat> our eyes to see being watchful opens our ability to grab onto those uh, God opportunities. I like the set the trap idea. Yeah. Like there's these God opportunities just wandering around like animals. <laughs> and the prayer just snap, snaps them and grabs them. But I mean, I think of you as a trapper. If, if you had gone out, ex-trapper. No, I'm, I'm, I don't do the fur thing Okay, anymore. no more. No, it's not cool to <laughs> nope. trap fur. But it was for food and sustenance, right? No, it's for okay. money. For money. There we go. <laughs> But if, if you had gone out and set those traps out there without setting them, if you had just right. laid them out in the world, would you no. have 
caught anything. No, no. we tried that. It didn't work. No. <laughs> so hard to get those open. Folks, you are listening to a pooling of ignorance. I, wow. <laughs> this is where <clears throat> zero plus zero still equals zero. <laughs> I mean, it is true, you know, as spiritual people, we have to be spiritually inclined with eyes that see so that we can grab onto God opportunities. And the way we get eyes to see is to be devoted to prayer and become watchmen on the wall. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> oh, I cannot believe that anybody is sitting through this and taking notes on it. Okay, so... I, I got to be like a, a fur trapper, those opportunities. <laughs> and I got to set the trap with my prayers. Oh, man. The watchman on the wall. And here's another thing I want to just share with you, and that is... Oh, please do. <laughs> ...that uh, prayer not only opens our eyes to see the God opportunities, prayer, prayer will uh, sanctify those opportunities. <laughs> Oh man, this this is the dumbest sermon I've heard in a long time. Woo! <laughs> Sanctify your dreams. Those lions that you want to chase but you're afraid of. You're what? Why do I want to chase a lion? Home. <laughs> you're not so sure which are they are they God opportunities or are they a lion that's going to devour me? And here's what happens when you pray. God not only sanctifies you, he sets you apart, but he also clarifies to you what dream to chase. <laughs> really? Can you give me a Bible verse on that one? Seriously. This is just a complete load of bovine scatology. Unbelievable. So many of us have dreams, but they're not all from God. And so as you begin to pray, that prayer will sanctify, it will set apart your life, your heart, and the dreams that God wants you to chase or the opportunities that he wants you to seize. So prayer and watching is, is very important, very important. Psalm 5.3 says this. Okay, <laughs> another verse taken out of context here. Psalm 5.3. Oh, oh, this is ridiculous. This is the silliest thing I've heard in a long time. And this is an example given to us by David, who had a lot of trouble in his life, but God said, he's a man after my own heart. How many of you would like to walk through the doorway of heaven and God comes up to you and says, you are a woman after my own heart. You're a man after my own heart. Well, David had a lot of trouble, but here's how he dealt with it. Psalm 5 verse 3 says that he was, his prayer ritual was in the morning. He said, in the morning, O Lord... You hear my voice in the morning. I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. I want you to underline that. Wait in expectation. David every morning went before the Lord because he was always in trouble. Look at how many Psalms he wrote. Lord, deliver me from this. Lord, deliver me from... Well, it sounds like if he was always in trouble, he wasn't exactly seizing the God opportunities, was he? Too busy running from trouble. For my enemies. I am dying. I'm on my bed dying. He had a bad situation a lot of the time. But he knew that he would go to the Lord every morning in prayer, devoted himself in prayer. He was watchful for God's opportunities. He was watching for God's opportunities. And God delivered him. But I want you to understand.
It doesn't say that in the text at all. Notice he's turning this into some kind of a law. If you do this, then you will get to see the God opportunities. So what what's the moral of the story here, folks? If you are blind spiritually to the God opportunities in your life or not sure which ones to seize, well, you need to apply Psalm 5.3. Get up every morning and, and pray so that God will open up your eyes to show you which God opportunities to seize and which ones to avoid, especially if you're a lion chaser. <clears throat> Let me read Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice, and in the morning I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies, bloodthirsty and deceitful men the Lord abhors, including Deceitful men who tell you lies about God's word, especially them. <clears throat> but I, by your great mercy, will come into your house in reverence. I will bow down towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies and make straight your way before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue, they speak deceit. Just like Dan is speaking deceit here. Declare them guilty, O God, and let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them, for they are many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. Read it in context and you realize these deceitful words uh, being spoken by this pastor, this so-called formula for you to be able to see the God-sized opportunities that you need to seize, you realize that that puts Dan in the company of deceitful men whom the Lord abhors. And we pray for Dan that God would grant him repentance and the forgiveness of sins for this complete malarkey that he's preaching. This is not a Christian sermon. It's not even a biblical sermon. This is supposedly principles that you have to apply so that you can seize God-sized opportunities, and yet the scriptures teach nothing of the sort. This is eisegesis, scripture-twisting, and just false doctrine, and a false Jesus, ultimately, that they're proclaiming. Underline that last point. It says, and, and he waited in expectation because the more we pray i want you to get this the more we pray the higher our expectations are here's what a lie again this is all law and it's not even biblical law it's just complete speculation and malarkey here's the deal so often our god is no bigger than a little superhero running around the earth Somebody that impresses you. That's how big God is. And that's all we expect of God when we don't have a prayer life. But as we begin to pray, devote our hearts and lives to prayer, all of a sudden God becomes a lot larger. And we have great expectations. And we can lay uh, before God all of our hopes and dreams and wait in expectations. That So the, the more we pray, the bigger size genie God becomes. So we can lay at, at, at his feet our hopes and expectations so that he can fulfill them for us. 
Yeah, that's basically turning God into a genie. That God is going to open our eyes and give us the ability to seize his opportunities when it's time, when the right time. If you're not praying, guess what? The byproduct of a no prayer life is a low expectation of God. Mm -hmm. This is just absolute ignorance, biblical ignorance, a low expectation of God. And I'm just telling you right now, the blessings of God are, are directly linked with how we pray, being devoted in prayer. So it, it's all law. The blessings of God are directly linked to how much you pray. You better get going. If you want the blessings of God, you better start praying. You better get busy. Don't you want to be blessed? Get busy. This is all you do, you do in order, so, in order to earn God's whatever. Law, law, law. False law, too. Prayer and watching. So to make the most of every opportunity, I think we have to really begin to change the way we look and see so that we might be able to see God's opportunity and seize them. Mm-hmm. And, and how prayer opens our eyes, it prepares the way, it gets those opportunities in front of us. But once those opportunities have come in front of us, we have to seize the moment of opportunities. You know, there's the... <laughs> Okay, <laughs> so once you see, you, you, God opens your eyes to see the God-sized opportunity. Now you got to seize the moment. Uh, what chapter and verse is this from again? Uh, the Latin term carpe diem, which literally. <laughs> oh, man. Carpe diem. Uh, what verses of the Bible is carpe diem found in? Seize the day. It's from the Dead Poets Society, I, you know, but I don't think it's biblical. It really means grab the day. Grab it. Grab onto the day. And I think, honestly, if, if we're honest with ourselves, there are days you wake up that you just don't want to grab. <laughs> You're like, day, you just keep going. I'm laying here in bed. Um, but God has called us to be day grabbers. It, it really, what verse of the Bible says that God has called us to be day grabbers? He was a... Day grabber, one way ticket, yeah. It took him so long to find out about the God sized dreams. <clears throat> bum, 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 bum. To be grabbers of the day, to seize the day, to seize the opportunity that he's put before us. Um, there's a phrase that, that comes right in the middle of a story in the Old Testament about a young woman. Which, which is just great. I just love this, this, this phrase. It's just a few words long, and it's for such a time as this. And you might already know this story just by hearing that phrase, and some of you may, have, may be saying, I don't know that story at all. I just want to sum it up for you quickly. Um, in the Old Testament, there's a, there's a young girl by the name of Esther, and uh, her entire nation had been carried off. They had been captured, and they had been carried off, to another land and enslaved. The Jewish people were still there. They were still um, a, a culture, but they were surrounded by this nation that was oppressing them, that was trying to destroy their culture. In fact, the king wanted to change the names of the people to change their culture. But, but all of a sudden, the king one day gets tired of his wife and... Um, Decides he needs some better looking ladies. I'm not going to ever get tired of you, honey. You're mine all the way. Yeah, you too. I'm never getting tired of you. You are my better looking lady. Um, Aww. (laughs) You're so cute. So she's.
painful. Painful to listen to. More embarrassed now than uh, if I hadn't said anything. But anyway, so what he does is he gets this whole group. He, he sends, sends people out, find the most beautiful women in the world, and that's still not good enough. I need you to put them through a one-year time of beautification and training. And so basically they were at a salon and a grammar school and a, not a grammar school, what's the word I'm looking for? A finishing etiquette school. Finishing, finishing school, school for an entire year to get them as beautiful and smelling as good as they possibly can and mm. acting exactly how they should because this was the king and he was going to get the best of the best. Now, just put yourself in her position. It might sound kind of glamorous and kind of nice, but basically she was snatched from her family and told, you are in training to, to become whatever this king wants you to become. Well, I just want to point something out here. Then um, wasn't it the king that snatched the God-sized opportunity by snatching up Esther? I mean, Esther was just kind of along for the ride, wasn't she? At least the way you're telling the story. Whenever he snaps his finger, you have to go in and do whatever he wants you to do. It wasn't a glamorous, fun, exciting time. It was a time of, oh my goodness, if I don't get chosen, I'm let down because I'm told I'm not woman enough. But if I am chosen, it means I live the rest of my life in fear and, and servitude because the last woman who was in this position wasn't good enough. And in fact, this king would kill people who came in and didn't please him and didn't make him happy. So not only is she supposed to be chosen by the king, but if, he doesn't, if she doesn't make him happy... He can kill her, and nobody blinks an eye. It's like, okay, okay, ground another hundred ladies up. Let's go through the process again. So Esther is in this kind of position. Both her parents are dead. She's uh, please keep in mind that this is not the authorized Cliff Notes version of the uh, story of Esther that you are hearing at this point. This is a um, a twisted and torqued version of it designed to help you so see the important phrase for such a time as this because that supposedly supports the... Uh, premise the cockeyed completely false premise uh that uh, god wants you to pray and be a watchman so that you can open your eye spiritual eyes to see the god-sized opportunities that are flowing in and out like the tide in your life so that you can seize them yeah i that that's my summary of this sermon so far and i think that would be an accurate summary unfortunately he's an orphan she has an uncle, Mordecai, who's kind of looking out for her, kind of helping her through. Well, it comes to a point where she makes it through, she makes the cut, she wins the beauty pageant, she becomes the queen. But it's very different than how you would think of our first lady now with her relationship to the president. There's a very subservient relationship in this, in this story. And so, Come to find out, there's a guy in the kingdom who wants to kill all the Jewish people. Wants to wipe them off the map. No more Jews ever in all time. They're done for. And there's only one person inside the, the kingdom who can make a difference. And it's this young girl. It's, it's Esther. And so, her uncle says, comes to her and says, this is your moment. This is your opportunity to save an entire nation. Who knows that you came to your position for such a time as this? And so Esther, if you know the story, hatches a really nice little scheme of how she's going to uh, uh, save the children of Israel. And she goes in and asks the king if, if he 
will come to supper and come to supper again. And eventually she asks him and says, this man has planned to kill me and all of my family. And he says, whoever would plan to kill you or hurt you, I will kill them. And so the law gets overturned. The Jewish people are saved. And the man who was attacking her ends up being hung on the very gallows that was built to hang her uncle on. Talk about poetic justice. <laughs> it's an it's a interesting, interesting story. But what if at one of those points she had backed down and said, no, that's too big. No, I might die. No, it, I, I'm just a girl. I'm not the one for this. Someone else should do this. I'm just a young girl. There's got to be someone else to save an entire nation. But she was willing to step up to the plate. She was willing to seize the moment of opportunity. Wasn't it God who put her in that place? And uh, which opportunity? I mean, seriously, do you think God's going to stick an opportunity in front of me where I get to save all the Jewish people? Why is it that you're making me the hero of the Bible when I'm not? And you're making Esther the hero when she isn't. God is the hero. Christ is the one who put her there. She was an agent of God to save and deliver his people, whom he promised he would save through the uh, through the Babylonian captivity, save a remnant for himself that would return to Jerusalem. The one who made the promise is the one who put the people in place to do the job. And it wasn't notice anything here in the story of Esther about her uh, you know, being faithful to devoting herself to prayer, or being a watchman so that she can open her spiritual eyes to see the opportunities that are ebbing and flowing in her life. No, this is a complete misreading of Esther. Um, there's the old saying that opportunity knocks. Um, but I think that makes opportunity pretty safe and comfortable. Uh, I don't believe that opportunity knocks. I think opportunity roars. I think when that opportunity is there in your face, it is huge. It is bigger than you. It's going to be more than you can handle on your own. Because God's never going to call us to anything that we can do on our own. Then we wouldn't need him. Esther. Oh, so we just need God to help us to do the things he's called us to. Didn't Christ do everything for me and, and by dying on the cross for all of my sins, saving me when I was still a sinner? He didn't need my help to save me. He did it all himself. Saw a roaring lion that wanted to devour her and her entire nation, and she stepped up to it, seized the moment, took the opportunity, and saved a nation. That's the kind of opportunities God has for you. Now, your, your people, your family might not be in danger of physical death. Really, where does it say in the Bible that God has that kind of opportunity for me? It doesn't. From the government. But maybe they're in spiritual danger. Or maybe there's someone out there that you've never even met yet that God has for you to impact their life. Let's go with that spiritual danger concept there for a second. Absolutely. All of the people attending this church are in deep spiritual danger because these guys are completely mangling and twisting God's word. And they're not proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. They're preaching uh, spiritual opportunity seizing, which is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So all of these people are in dire, deep spiritual danger. 
I should seize the opportunity here to call them to repentance and tell them to flee, get out of there. It's a trap. Satan has got you in the, it has got you. Leave that church immediately, quick, run away. Life to do something for them. Or maybe there's something that you have been holding deep in your heart that you've just thought about. Man, this would be so great. I would love to do this. But you've never stepped up to take the opportunity. Um, and, and Pastor Dan, I just think of, of that, uh, what you've been filling out over the past few days. It's a huge opportunity in your life that you could let slide right by or you could seize. Um, I didn't ask if I could share this, but I'm going to go ahead. Um, he, is, he is pursuing, and we'll see how far it goes as he grabs this opportunity, getting his master's. Um, getting that next level of education that he wants. And the way this opportunity came by was amazing. It, it's the only time yeah. I've ever heard of, of yeah. something like this working out where he would be able to continue what he's doing and still earn a master's uh, without having to go through a whole lot of preliminary work to get it taken care of. And it's scary. He's been talking to everybody he knows, should I do this? Should I, I don't want to do this. It's sitting down in my office. We talked for a long time. Should we do this? I don't know. Ah, what does this mean? But he's seizing the moment. He's seizing the opportunity. And God has opportunities for each one of us like that, that we can seize or we can let flow by. And I just want to challenge you, challenge us. Let's seize the moment. Let's grab a hold of the opportunity and not let it float by. I think that's the key word is seize. Because, you know, in Christianity, there's so much believism that goes on out there. I believe, I believe, I believe. Isn't this believism? I believe God has a God-sized opportunity for me that I need to seize. If I would just devote myself to prayer and uh, being a watchman, then, then he'll open my spiritual eye. Isn't that a form of believism? But you know what, the, what, what um, James calls that? You know, he says the devils believe. Demons believe. But it's the righteous who take action. Oh, so the self-righteous. But <clears throat> Real quick question. Are you righteous? Understand that the law demands perfect righteousness. It demands perfect obedience before it'll declare you to be righteous. How are you stacking up to that? How's it working out for you? And so that's what I just want to do to you today, and not do to you, but encourage you to do. Oh, yeah, you're doing this to them. That's the right word. That was a perfectly valid slip on your part. Rather accurate. Do is take action on those God opportunities. I'm taking action on what I believe is a God opportunity. However, aren't you so spiritual? <laughs> Can I kiss your feet? You know, for a lot of them, until you take action, you're not going to really know if it's God opportunity or not. I'm kind of hoping that it isn't, you know, because, you know, I don't want to go through a bunch more work. But yet, you know, when God keeps bringing something back, if the tide keeps coming in and going out and you keep seeing this and you've got to say, well, God, if this is you, he says, yeah, if it's me, why don't you try to do something about it and find out? And so you take that next step. And so that's what I'm doing. And that's what I believe God is calling you to do is to is to take action and seize your God-given opportunities, however small they may be, however large they may be, because God wants us as a church, as people, as individuals, to get up off of our you-know-whats, our proverbial believisms, and get out there and do something. Because faith that is not followed by action 
is dead. It's dead. You can have all that. Uh, You're not cultivating good works here, dude. All you're doing is giving the law, not the gospel, which is not how you produce good works in somebody. (sighs) Glory of believing you want, but until you get out there and do it, you know, it's really not going to produce. So you really are not truly a Christian unless you are uh, doing what's necessary to seize the God-sized opportunities. You are kind of a subpar, probably a backslidden carnal Christian if you're not seizing God-sized opportunities. Unbelievable. The fruit that God's looking for. That's true. And, and we- No, none of this is true. This is all one big tapestry of lies. We've spent the last six weeks talking about chasing lions, about the story of Benaiah who went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion and ended up becoming the armor bearer for the king. And we've talked about how God wants us to take opportunities, seize opportunities, chase our 500-pound lions. (sighs) Mythology. Nothing like good old exchanging the truth of God's word for myths. Yeah, this is a... Fine, ear-scratching, ear-tickling sermon. It ain't biblical, but boy, it sure is entertaining. And if you think this is the Bible, (laughs) yeah, you got another thing coming. But really what it comes down to is chasing lions is really living a Christ-centered life. All these principles are good and true, and we need to put them into our life. But if your life is not centered on Jesus Christ... And how do I do that again? How do I, uh, does it have anything to do with what Christ has done for me? Are you going to give me the gospel here at all? Or just all these, this list of do's that I need to do as far as chasing lions and and uh, opening my spiritual eyes so I can seize God-sized opportunities that are owing, flebbing and flowing with the tide, whatever. It's not worth it. You can kill a thousand lions and it won't be worth it. Because it's all about Jesus. What has he done for me? I mean, you say it's all about Jesus. Can you give me anything that he's done for me? It's all about living a life based on going to... Oh, Jesus, the a Christ-centered life is you following the example of Jesus and trying to make yourself holy and pleasing to God. Ah, that's not the biblical gospel, and that's not what it means biblically to be Christ-centered. Christ-centered is focusing on what Jesus has done for us towards coming from our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I just want to encourage you today, maybe you haven't been living a Christ-centered life. Yeah, maybe I've been sinning like you have. Maybe you've been living a life that has been centered around other things, and he's been a part of it, but he hasn't been that stake in the middle of your life. I don't even know what that means. Because you don't even have Christ at the center of your life, because you sin, Pastor Or should I say coach, coach, life coach? Today, I want to give you the challenge to choose that, to put Jesus in the center. And and how do I do that again? What what, what am I putting him into the center of? How do you do this again? This is all me, something I have to do. Nothing about what Christ has done for me. It's all the things I have to do. This is nothing but pharisaical works righteousness. Dressed up in some kind of seize the day, carpe diem, God-sized opportunity speech. Which wasn't even a biblical teaching at all. Not go into a pit without Jesus leading you there. To not chase a lion without him being the one who's going in front of you. 
Okay, I guarantee you I will not go into any lion pits unless Jesus actually physically shows up and goes first. Okay, I, I'm with you there. I, I'll, I promise to do that. Because the Bible says that it's a terrible thing for a person to gain the whole world and lose their own soul. So t- You don't even know what the doctrine of justification is, do you? Doesn't even know what the doctrine of sanctification is either. This is just convolute. These are these are people who should not be preaching at all. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, they are hurting themselves and others. Today, let's not let that happen. Let's not gain the whole world and lose our own soul. Yeah, repent therefore and believe the good news that Christ died for all of your sins. That we're saved by grace through faith alone, not of works. It's all God's doing but to put Jesus at the center of our lives. But you don't even do that, Pastor. You sin all the di- every day. What are you talking about? We're going to take a moment here to wait on you for your tithes and offerings, and then we have a way we just want to wrap up this. You ex- expect to get paid for this biblical malarkey? Whew. Man, I bet there's a lot more money in twisting God's word than there is in faithfully exegeting it, isn't there? series here this morning um so just continue to to stick around for that but those who are helping with the offering could you come forward at this time we're going to take a moment to pray (coughs) for the offering and we're going to stop right there folks that was not biblical christ-centered preaching at all Christ-centered preaching would tell us what Christ has done for us. Not give us some made-up principles and rules that you need to follow in order to, fo- to, in order to see some invisible God-sized dreams that are par- apparently sitting on the tide of life, lo- ebbing and flowing into your life, and you... No. There is no formula for such things. And the Bible didn't teach anything like that. Here's the bad news. We're all sinners. All of us are born sinful and rebellious against God. Spiritually blind is a good way of putting it. But spiritually dead is more accurate. We are all rebels against God, and the reason why we sin is because by nature we are sinners and objects of God's wrath. Each and every one of us has earned hell. Just today. If the only day that you lived was today, you earned hell today. But God has a different word, another word. And that word is is that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that you couldn't live for you in your place. And he died in your place and took the punishment that you earned because of your sin in your place. And he's offering full and complete forgiveness of sins won by him on the cross. Repent, therefore, of your sinful rebellion and wickedness against God and believe the good news that Christ died for you. Those whom God grants repentance and the forgiveness of sins and faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins will spend eternity with him purely as a gift, purely as a gift. And those whom God has regenerated, given a new heart, transformed, they will do good works. And 
what is a good work? Uh, and, and good work is not praying hard so that you can open up your dead spiritual eyes to see God-sized opportunities. That's not even taught in the Bible at all, regardless of what those guys just put together in this so-called sermon. A good work is changing diapers, cleaning snotty noses, driving to work every day, working in a cubicle, and doing the work that God has given you to do as a father, as a husband, as a mother, as a son, as a daughter, as a student, as an employee. That's a good work. And because you are perfectly righteous in Christ and have his perfect righteousness given to you as a gift, God sees even those feeble good works as pleasing to him. As eleven, as Hebrews eleven six says, without faith it's impossible to please God. So if you're trying to please God based on your raw, naked obedience, you can't do it. But if you are in Christ, even your feeblest and most vile good works are pleasing to God. And you don't trust in them to save you. They can't. Only Christ saves you. Only what he's done saves you. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. Repent your wickedness and trust this good news. All right, need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and it's only through your generous contributions and gifts that we are able to financially pay our bills and to exist and survive and bring Fighting for the Faith to you. Right now, we're looking for a 1,000 of our listeners to join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, and you can do this by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And click on the Join Our Crew button. It's a mere $6.95 a month. And uh, there's perks. One of the perks is that you get access to our secret pirate Christian cove, which is a growing treasure trove of plundered theological resources uh, designed to help you go deeper in God's Word and grow, grow, grow in biblical understanding, sound theology, and apologetics. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on Join Our Crew. Of course, if you'd like to donate a flat amount, we we always appreciate that. You can do so by clicking the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, sadly, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith, and I would love to uh, hear from you. Uh, you can uh, email me and contact me at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can follow me on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there, again, pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen. Amen.